Welcome to the Breathe Podcast, where we explore the intersection of faith and creativity. We interview artists from all walks of life to discover how faith plays a role in their art and expression, hoping to encourage you to live a life of creativity and faith. And now, please welcome your co-hosts, Derek Engoy, Christian Mendoza, and Kevin Horton. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Breathe Faith and Creativity podcast. I am so excited that I get a chance to talk to our guest today. And as I mentioned on the podcast previous times, I'm a two-time Voice Arts Awards nominee. And this is how the, my guest and I crossed paths. At about 2018, probably in November, I got an email from this person that invited me to a private event prior to the Voice Arts Awards gala. And I'd like to introduce you to director, voiceover coach, Robin Armstrong. Robin, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for asking me, Kevin. Tell us a little bit about yourself, specifically about your faith background and how you came to embrace it. Well, uh, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I came to faith when I was 17 in my hometown of Phoenix, Arizona. I've been in Los Angeles since about a week after my 21st birthday, so... Uh, even though I'm born and bred in Arizona, uh, I've spent many more years here than I ever did there. And uh, it's a uh, uh, an interesting place to try to walk with the Savior and to try to be salt and light for Him in this industry. Can you name some of the movies that you had produced and directed several years ago, I believe? Right. Well, the first film that I made was, uh, well, I made lots of short subject films, both corporate and entertainment. And then I made my first feature in 1991, which for many of your listeners was before they were born. And that was a film that won the audience award at the Sundance Film Festival. Um, and it was actually the first year it was called the uh, the Sundance Film Festival. Prior to that time, it was called the U.S. Film Festival. And I remember my partner and I um, saying, oh, great, they changed the name of, this, of the festival as soon as we get in. Nobody's going to know anything about this Sundance thing. Well, here we are 32 years later, and um, nobody remembers the U.S. Film Festival. And now, everybody remembers the Sundance yeah. Film Festival. So, in any case, it was the first year, 1991, and it was a minor league baseball film set in 1957. It won under the title, the original title, which was One Cup of Coffee, and really wasn't Cup of, it was One Cup of Coffee, which is a rather iconoclastic title that is sort of uh, metaphoric for what happens in the film. And um, But the film has to do with two friends in the depths of Class D minor league baseball in 1957 in central California. Class D ball doesn't exist anymore. There's A, double A, AA, and triple A, but back then there was A, double AA, A, triple A, but also B, C, and D. This was the lowest level uh, that there was in minor league ball. And it was a story of a white guy who was too old to be playing anymore, 41 years old, still in the depths of the minors, and a young 17-year-old black phenom uh, with an arm like a rocket as a pitcher who was just right off the farm. One was outcast for his age and one was outcast for his race. And the two formed a friendship which lasted just a fairly brief time 
but this is a sort of a glimpse into that friendship and, and what it was. A lot of people don't know, but the term cup of coffee in Major League Baseball refers to when you're getting toward the end of the season for the teams that are not in contention for the pennant and the ones who are now out of it call up their minor league players so they get to get a chance to give them a look-see and see how they do. And if somebody is really good, they stay with the big club. And if somebody's not, they get sent back down to the minors. The people who get sent back down to the minors after having been up for a game or two or three are said to have had a cup of coffee in the majors. And that is the meaning that relates to baseball, but it also relates to the relationship between these two characters. The film was called One Cup of Coffee, but after it won Sundance and had all kinds of national and international write-ups in newspapers, when I sold the film to Harvey Weinstein, he forced me to change the title. He gave me 700 choices and said, you know, people are going to think this film is about a coffee shop or a coffee clutch or something. And I shot back. I said, Harvey, right now you're releasing a movie called My Left Foot. What does that mean? But obviously Harvey gets what Harvey wants. At least he did then. And that was the legacy of that. That was the first film. From that, I went on to, uh, after winning Sun, uh, Sundance and several other international festivals at, with that film, I was hired to make a film called Free Willy, a film about a killer whale that was a Warner, Brother, Warner Brothers film. But as a result of uh, some double dealing and dishonesty on the part of the producers, allowing me to believe that my script changes were actually going to make it into the script, from day one when I presented them and they said, let's put these in and get going until 10 months later, after I'd been on the film, none of those changes ever made it into the script. And I began to realize, um, this is not going to be the film that I had hoped to make it. It's going to be something different. I wanted the film to be like ET with a boy and a whale or mm. the black stallion perhaps, but, uh, something that would have an adult audience and a children's audience, as both those films did. But, in fact, there was never any intention to make it anything more than a film for children. Uh, but that was never disclosed to me, and, in fact, I was lied to. So I proceeded under the misapprehension that my changes would make it in. And when I realized that they wouldn't, we sat down and had a uh, big discussion. And I said, I think I, think, um, I need to step away. So I left that film behind. And when I made a film with a Christian message uh, that was called Behind the Sun, and that film was a film about Islamic fundamentalism in the Middle East. We shot it in, I, I don't like to use the term shot when we're in the Middle East. We filmed in uh, uh, Israel and Egypt, and it was a profound story about a young man who comes to faith out of Islam, and his family is after him to kill him. As a result, and uh, how he uh, has to maneuver and make his way through life, uh, and it lasts probably over the over the period of uh, three weeks. Also, three very intense weeks in this young man's life, and for that we had to assume phony names and have phony papers over in the Middle East, and uh, we were working behind the scenes with the ambassadors over there. Um, to be able to operate and uh, to carry footage out of the country. And it was, uh, it was dicey at certain points. There were some stories 
that involved life and death and uh, and international relations that were part of what happened there. But we made it out, made the film, and uh, won a bunch of awards for that. And then I just decided to jump into 20 years of directing commercials for big, huge national corporations, you know, AT&T, Porsche, hmm. uh, Chevrolet, um, uh, you know, major brands, and got to shoot all over the world and uh, and uh, experience what that was all about. And that's based, I mean, I'm working on some screenplays now, but uh, I don't have anything in immediate production uh, at this moment. And how we met was we crossed paths because of the, the medium of voiceover. And you're one of the most well-known coaches, I would say, across the, the nation and also the world. But how did you find yourself into that niche? Well, back in Arizona, I got started at about age 15 as a young filmmaker. And even though, yes, I was an actor and even a singer because I, ma I majored in vocal music at Arizona State while playing in rock and roll bands around town, <clears throat> I... Um, I really had storytelling from a film standpoint in my in my innermost uh, soul, uh, heart, and I started making films in Super 8 millimeter. If anybody remembers that, the little teeny thin strips of film. I do. Yeah, exactly. You'd get a little roll that was three minutes long, and you drop it off at the drugstore, just as you did your still photographs, and they'd have it back in five, six, seven days, and then you get to anxiously look at your film and start editing. And then that bumped up to 16 millimeter. And I began to uh, make it known to local merchants around the Phoenix area that I was available to make, uh, to make commercials for them. And of course, local budgets were low, 500 bucks, a thousand bucks. Again, that was 500 or a thousand bucks in the seventies. So it wasn't like that today. It's probably worth a couple thousand to $3,000 today. And, um, the budgets were so low that I didn't have money to pay a voiceover artist to, to do them. So I did them myself. And um, as a result of that, other people began asking me to do voices for theirs. Then I moved to California when I came over in 1976 to do an apprenticeship with Peter Bogdanovich uh, at Columbia Pictures. And at that point, um, I, I signed with talent agents in Los Angeles. And I was directing talent over here. Uh, to a greater and greater degree while still performing. And then after I'd gone through making films and started getting into commercials and other media, uh, I began to have some young actors ask about studying both because I teach acting, I teach voice acting, I teach uh, writing and, and directing. Um, I teach advanced photography here in the studio. Anybody, if you were here in person, you would see the lights here for photography. And uh, so all those disciplines are are part and parcel of the entire filmmaking enterprise. And so uh, when I came back from being done with the 20 years of commercials, I was getting ready to make a film when we got hit with the recession of 2008. I came back, uh, I say came back, I never left Los Angeles, but I was out of town a lot. And I decided I was, I was uh, finished with commercials. I, uh, I remember one time having a sort of a moment of realization when, I saw seven or eight semi-trucks and a crew of 75 people so that we could be directing a kid eating a peanut butter sandwich for Skippy. And I began realizing, is this really what I want to put my 
my talents toward is this really why I learned how to make film? So I decided to step off the merry-go-round and, and, and begin to work on making film again when we got hit with that recession. And my independent investors got scared because nobody knew what was happening at that moment. So I thought, well, what do I want to do now? So I took my office, which is here at a place called The Hideout in North Hollywood, and I completely refurbished it and re-outfitted it as a teaching, recording, video, uh, audio, uh, uh, multimedia studio. And that's where I've been working ever since and uh, got together a few people and had a class and then word began to spread. And now I have more students than I know what to do with. I mean, all over the world and by Zoom and some in the studio. And uh, it's it's quite rewarding and fulfilling. And I am counted as one of your students for you the past couple are. of years. Absolutely. And, and I'm very, very thankful. In fact, we're recording this in the hideout studio. So I'm where he talked about the history of this happening. I'm standing in the booth with him. Well, out in the booth, but we're, we're recording here presently. So my next question is to you, let's dive a little bit deeper, deeper. How does your faith play a role in your artistic creativity? Well, I would have to say that my artistic creativity is only expressed in some, in so far as I'm, uh, coaching and teaching and training others to be the best they can be uh, at this moment. Uh, working on screenplays and working with a couple of writers and others uh, is most of the creativity is going to be project-oriented. And right now, the project uh, direction of my work is the minority part of it. It doesn't mean I won't, don't want it to be the majority part of it, but projects have to catch on and develop to a certain place where uh, they make sense and then you've got to go put money behind them. So it's a long process. So right now in the development process, I'm busily working together, working away at getting, uh, getting talent to the highest level. And um, my faith has an impact in how I communicate with my students, my pro artists and uh, the ethics of running my business even though it's not, um, it's not actually putting itself into specific projects very often. I will do a little project. I'll do a commercial here or there where I'm casting and, uh, and producing the post-production. But for the most part, I really want to be developing my own projects. And, and because I don't have to worry about anything financially, I can do those at, at a at my own pace and, uh, and be training others in the meantime, which I really love doing. This next question, I think, is really beautiful because it, it states about how your art has healed you. So it says, how does your art positively, how has it positively helped you in your own self-care and how have you seen and bring helping, uh, healing to others? <clears throat> well, it's interesting. Um, I have a friend who is a former student and a psychologist who called me the other day and told me about a person that is one of her patients. Now, of course, she's under very strict confidentiality about saying the name of any particular patient. But she described this individual to me and uh, asked if I would uh, coach this individual. Um, and I was told, 
that she was given permission to talk to me about it and that if I gave her my information, I should be expecting a call in the next couple of days. But she wanted me to be able to be a father figure uh, based on she knows that when I love all my students and I work with my students carefully and intimately and 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 really um, in many aspects of their lives that aren't just related to the actual production of voiceover. And um, so it's very flattering when someone, and she's not a believer either, so uh, when I say she, I mean the psychologist, that she would recognize something in me, uh, and, and I don't take any credit for it, certainly, that uh, she would want to take one of her valued clients and turn them over to me to uh, help them with uh, this aspect of them being able to build their confidence in speaking as they look at... Uh, the last three or four years of, a, of an earlier career that's coming to an end and a new chapter and do so in a way that would not make the individual feel um, echoes of some trauma they've had earlier in their life. But in a bigger sense, <clears throat> I guess I'd have to say that um, for me, um, I don't know what I would do if I were not in the creative arts. I mean, I'm sure with my wife, uh, and my kids, I would have had done whatever I had to do to simply right. supply income to the household. But I've been very fortunate. The last time I worked for anyone was waiting tables in 1978. Uh, and uh, I have been able to go to sleep at night feeling as though I'm contributing. I've been able to exercise my creative muscles, which are a gift of God. And I do regularly submit that to him. Uh, so that he might use it as he sees fit. And it's rewarding and fulfilling, even though I must say there are struggles. I have to deal with people who are absolutely hostile to the things that I believe. Um, and I have to work hard at helping them too and do so in a way that uh, is loving, despite the fact that they may find what I believe to be uh, rubbish or worse. <laughs> We're all involved with that with the various fields I'm in and you're in. And I want to talk about something very specific that I'm part of that I would like to say has been very, very helpful to me. So I can say from a personal standpoint has been helpful to me. And that is Robin Armstrong's panic room. And for those of you that don't know about it, it's a workout group, international workout group that I've been part of. And I've been able to see this man work in action because he works with all different types of people, all different types of situations. And yet we all are clumped together for a good three hours and pass dumb jokes and all the, the fun stuff back. But when we get down to the work and to the meat of everything, it's something I think it's very beautiful that happens because we develop a family, especially during the pandemic. This is when this occurred. You gave us an avenue to be creative. And I want to thank you publicly for that. Well, thank you. Yeah, when we all were sent home from the studio and I'm sitting here talking to all my students on Zoom and holding all my classes on Zoom, I thought, well, there are no more geographical barriers anymore. Even though 90% of my students were out of Los Angeles with a few in New York and a few others scattered around, I said, there's no barriers now. And a lot of people who have wanted to do things in the past, this is the way everything's done. So I reached out to a bunch of my students and they said, yeah, we'd love that. 
and it's just flourished. We have two back-to-back panic room labs every other Saturday, and we have people from Germany and Costa Rica and London and New Zealand and Australia and Long Beach and uh, Ecuador and Dominican Republic and so on. So it's really fantastic and, and the opportunity for our skills to sharpen one another. And uh, and even though it started out as a workout group, the new name is Panic Room International Voice Actors Labs because we've enriched way beyond what we started with. And it's really a full-scale, every-other-week lab that allows our, our pro and student artists to... Uh, the four key words are focus learn, connect, create, and ultimately thrive. I know there are five, but I said, and I said four, but the first four, focus, learn, connect, and create, result in the fifth one, which is thrive. Because from a personal standpoint, I can see where I was in voiceover before I started Panic Room, and now I see where I am because I started Panic Room two years on. I'm not in the same place, and that's the beautiful part. And the other thing that I like, and we talk about how that's healing, is I got to participate in other people's success, helping them through the trenches. And I've developed lifelong friendships now because of my participation with Panic Room. Exactly. And it's something that people want to stay in. I've designed it to be extraordinarily inexpensive compared to anything else that's out there. It was so dirt cheap at the beginning, it was ridiculous. I had a couple of voiceover coaches say to me, Robin, you're killing us. And I said, well, you know, people have been furloughed or laid off. Or if they were a freelancer driving Uber or waiting tables or something, uh, lost their work. And I said, I don't want anybody to not be able to continue working on this for, for something as silly as money. So we slowly began to bring the, the membership dues back a little bit higher, but it's still nowhere near the market. And we'll bump it up a little bit each new six-month cycle. We bumped it up a little in January. We'll bump it up a little in June. We'll bump it up a little next January. Bump it up a little the following June. So that it's gradual, so that it doesn't hurt anybody. But even when we get to the highest, uh, most mature rate for dues on that, I still want it to be the cheapest thing around because I don't want money to be a barrier for people and I don't need the money. So I, I love being able to do it. And I'm just glad that people like Kevin and others are, uh, are reaping the benefits. And that, uh, that's what drives me. That's fascinating to me just to hear your story. I, I know your story. And that's why I wanted to bring you on the podcast. This podcast, I found out, goes worldwide, so you never know who your story will impact. And I think that's the beautiful thing. And what's so healing for me to be able to host this is I'm like, wow, I get to drive this car. <laughs> I don't know where I'm driving it. I'm putting my talent, because hosting a podcast like this takes, you have to have a good voice, hopefully, and know how to run an interview. And I, I've learned through that how to do it mm-hmm. within time constraints and things like that. But the beautiful part is, if you listen back to season one, season two, season three, they all have a recurring theme, but different voices and different stories. I love the fact that we can take somebody who's been a voiceover pro for 20 years, and we can take somebody who was a cab driver or a waiter or a businessman or a businesswoman, a doctor, a lawyer, a person from any walk of life who is a communicator naturally and has the ability to use their voice to persuade or to energize or to challenge or to create emotion. And we can work with that person to help them get where they want to go. And I have to say, every time that we have our private lesson together, one part of what you ask me, which at first I thought it was a little different because I had never been through this before, but 
he has us go through a section called reflections. And when I first started, I thought that meant reflections on the lesson itself. And then more and more, you kept telling me, no, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? And I have to tell you, a lot of times you were the light in my life and you were the light and you were the ability for me to voice something out. And I got positive reinforcement back. Sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, it's not positive reinforcement, but what would a coach be if, it, if, if he didn't want you to improve and you had to change things, which I've had to, and hopefully I'm, I'm moving toward correcting them. But the beautiful part is when he meant reflections, he means how is your soul doing? How are you doing? How are you doing in whatever you want to talk about? And that's been very therapeutic for me. And I think that that really talks about how you've helped people heal. Well, that means a lot, especially coming from you. Thank you so much. There's one final thing that we always do, and I think it's a fun part. It's called the lightning round. Would you be willing to play for a minute or two? Oh, of course. I get to give you two options. You don't have time to think, and you have to pick one. Okay. Okay, let's go. Orson Welles or Thurl Ravenscroft? Orson Welles. Pork chops or prime rib? Pork chops. Universal Studios or Disneyland? Disneyland. Chocolate pudding or chocolate pie? I'd say neither, but I would say chocolate mousse. Coffee or tea? Coffee. New Testament or Old Testament? Oh, my goodness. Well, I can, can't rip them apart, but uh, probably I would say New Testament from the, from the most immediate uh, standpoint. And this is coming from personal experience with you, Ferrari or BMW? Well, I only drive a BMW because I can't afford a Ferrari, but Ferrari, but I'm in, re in practicality BMW. <laughs> and the most important question everybody needs to know from you is at In-N-Out Burger, double-double or cheeseburger? Double-double every time. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. That's the fabulous Robin Armstrong. And where can people contact you if they're interested in following up with you about possibly working with you? Uh, my website is very simple. My last name is Armstrong. That's arm as in arm and strong as in strong. A-R-M-S-T-R-O-N-G. Then VO for voiceover.com. Armstrongvo.com. And then when you get on there, you just click on the little icon that says send an email message. Or you can click on the panic room graphic there and uh, send me an email and just introduce yourself. And I'll be more than happy to get back to you and we'll talk about getting together to have a conversation about it. And as we always do with all our guests, finally, we always say, do you have any final words or final words of encouragement? I would simply say, whatever you're doing in your career, whatever you're doing in your life, with your children, with your finances, with anything that's been entrusted to you, realize that uh, if you're in trouble, if you're having difficulty, if you're having challenges, that God knows these things. They're not a surprise to him. They're not catching him off guard and that you can never fail and you can never lose by realizing that you're not in charge and putting these things over in his hands and allowing him to lead you humbly, prayerfully and gratefully. And uh, that's the way that I try to approach what I do. And I've had my share of moments in the trenches, as I'm sure some of you are, but uh, God is greater and he knows the end from the beginning. And he has, uh, he has plans for what he wants to do to use your situation 
in your life to grow you. There'll be many, many years ahead. Thank you so much. I look forward to it.